Hey, Carl here to say that Music to Code By is now an app called Music to Flow By. Now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability. The first three tracks are free, and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. Just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're still Connect in New York City at Spring Studios down in Tribeca. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Sarash is here. We're going to be talking to him in just a few minutes. But first, we have this little matter of a very geeky, better know framework today. All right, dude, what do you got? You will like this, my friend, mm-hmm. because this involves old hardware. <laughs> <laughs> well, this guy's got a device called a Floppotron. I love it. So using floppy drives, disk drives, and other old devices that make noise, he programs them to play music. That's like he awesome. programs them with the inherent noise they make. I think he's got a dot matrix printer in there as well. Yeah, it sounded like it, but he just says 64 floppy drives, eight hard disks, and two scanners. And uh, we'll put the link up there. It's 1497.pwop.me, or of course you can just... Google or Bing, Floppotron, F-L-O-P-P-O-T-R-O-N. He put one out for Halloween, Ghostbusters. <laughs> Ghostbusters theme. <laughs> and it sounds like bad arcade music, Yeah, right? it's based like 8-bit, you yeah, know, old video game way. music. But it's just these devices making noise. Yeah. It's so strange. That is funny. Well, anyway, that's what I have. That's really cool. Dude. Who's talking to us today? This comic comes from pseudonym faulty i'll presume that's not his actual name uh which is carl's comment on detecting if he's chatting with a bot or a human reminds me of this rs key app that by executing a set of calculations will result in indicating which chipset is being used in a scientific calculator some even differentiating a clone Maybe we can build a similar database of bot detectors that could lead to maybe an anti-bot war like Adblock versus anti-Adblock. Mm, so you mm. could actually, when you get a bot, it just flags it as a bot as right. opposed to an actual human chatter. Yeah. I wonder if in the future the bot might open up a new vulnerability, maybe a backdoor with secret phrases to activate some hidden code or some way to trigger a buffer overflow just by chatting. <laughs> um, Bot exploits. <laughs> Bot exploits. <laughs> Bot exploits. <laughs> it is kind of an arms race, though, yeah. as these technologies advance to see there's a competitive advantage there with, you know, cost-effective immediate tech support. When do you escalate to a human if necessary? Like, Have you ever really asked a bot, are you a bot? And, of course, they say no. No. Right? But They always say no. Yeah, it's like, but I feel like there's got to be some test, and it's not necessary esoteric. Like, you know, in Star Trek, Data could yeah. use a uh, contraction. He would never say can't. Yeah. He would also say cannot. Well, this is from the conversation we had with Galena, right? Which yeah. was exactly that. It's like, when the, how are we not going to be able to tell when it's a bot, it's a bot? There's a yeah. whole other piece of software to be written there. Yeah. You are much too happy to be a human. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen what you do for a living? <laughs> so, Faulty, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He is at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We run up through the flop truck. <laughs> 
Please set your tweets uh, to music of sorts. I can imagine you took all those tweets and you just turned them into a stream of bits and then just put them through an audio feed. It would sound like a modem running, I think. It would sound like... Probably. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, let's uh, bring our esteemed guests on today. Uh, Joseph Sarash is a corporate vice president in the Artificial Intelligence and Research Group at Microsoft. He currently leads Microsoft's AI platform strategy and products such as Azure Machine Learning, Azure Cognitive Services, Azure Search, and Bot Framework. Prior to this role, he was the CVP for Microsoft's data platform. Welcome, Joseph. Yeah, thank you, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you, sir. So, what did you think of the Floppatron? Is that crazy? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, you know, I actually want to hear that Peter Frampton thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. the talk box. <laughs> On do top you, of that, yeah. that would be fun. Do you feel like I feel? No, yeah, I do, exactly. Yeah. Do you feel like My I wife feel? and I were, because I'm a musician, I'm a guitar player, and I was hugely inspired by Peter Frampton, so this is kind of funny. I was just saying to my wife yesterday, we were talking about, you know, she says, I wash your underwear, you know, like, <laughs> you know, give us some respect, and I said... Okay, I've played the solo to Peter Frampton's Do You Feel Like We Do with a talk box, note for note, in front of 30,000 people. <laughs> Top that. That's <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, yeah, I, I love geeking out on this old stuff, and we've been geeking out on AI a little bit as well, and uh, a lot of stuff going on here at Connect. Yeah, lots of stuff. Platforms, you know, I don't know if, if uh, people had a chance to see, but we uh, took the JFK files data, and we organized and analyzed it with AI and created this awesome demo and it just connects up all the different pieces of information. So you solved the conspiracy theory <laughs> of JFK's assassination. You know, we did find something very interesting. You know, we found SQL Server in there, <laughs> in JFK files. And wow. I'm thinking, hey, okay, SQL crazy. Server didn't kill JFK, but right. you know, here's what happened. It was in, uh, Congress had mandated that all this information be organized and assembled in a secure facility. Mm-hmm. And in 97, the platform they selected included SQL Server and Lotus Notes, and they have a whole architecture of how the C- uh, secure classified information facility wow. mm-hmm. should be built with all of that. And that was in the whole treasure trove of documents that were released. Was all this, pretty funny. Was yeah. some SQL Server, some yeah, old SQL Server stuff. Hang on, I'm getting a phone call. It's Oliver Stone. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to talk to you, Joseph. Uh, so it was right. a SQL Server on the grassy knoll, yeah. but it was SQL Server in a basement in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Well, it's amazing stuff that you guys are doing in AI, and maybe you can uh, fill us in on some more of the things that you showed here at Connect today. Yeah, happy to call. Um, so, look, we're building the platform of the future for AI, and it leverages all the power of the cloud. So, the explosion in AI is driven by a couple of things. Driven by the digitization of the world, so enormous amounts of data. Social media. Everybody's pictures online. Yeah, and every type of behavior is sure. actually coming yeah. online. Right. Yeah. For example, I have actually a fun story about connected cows in Japan, where they, people have actually, Fujitsu has actually put pedometers on the legs of cows in dairy farms. Ah, cow and, measurements. Well, yeah. Do cows need to take 10,000 steps a day? <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it's a very interesting application. Like, look, the one control that farmer has to maximize milk output is to really ensure the cows never miss a cycle of pregnancy. Sure. If they don't have a calf, they don't get yeah, milk. Yeah, that one month or so, you, mm-hmm. you have no milk, right. right? Well, so when you have hundreds of thousands of cows in a dairy farm, how are you going to spot when the cow goes into heat? Right. Well, farmers in the past, you know, they've, they've done it by visual observation. Right. But when you have, you know. Right. So what happens actually today is you do miss uh, pregnancy cycles all the time. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, so Fujitsu discovered one really cool thing. If you counted the number of steps a cow takes and look at the ratio of the number of steps a cow is taking an hour versus the same hour the previous day, mm. when that spikes up, the cow is actually going into heat. Right. Wow. That's Looking a, for a bull. So they have the, a heifer yeah. Fitbit. <laughs> right. And then, so the optimum time then for artificial insemination turns out to be 16 hours from that. Oh, I see. Wow. That's when... AI meets AI, artificial insemination. That <laughs> Somehow, I don't think we'll see that on the flop of trial. <laughs> that's right. But, you know, the thing is, that's when you get maximum consumption. Sure. Yeah. And Fujitsu discovered some amazing things when they looked at insemination time period. If you perform the AI, artificial insemination, the first four hours, you were likely to get a female calf. Interesting. And in the second four hours, you're more likely to get a male cow, mm. you know, probabilistically, right? Right, yeah. Well, and it sort of speaks to have a family dairy farm, right, down in New Zealand, for better or worse. Not that I'm any by any stretch of imagination farmer, I just have a certain amount of data. Depending on the kind of farm you're running, sometimes you do want to breed your new milk cows, and so you'd rather have females because they're going to give milk where the males are not. What kind of time warp show did I just step into here? <laughs> we were just talking to Brian Harry about cows because he's on a farm. And yeah, he's yeah, Keep having farming references. We've got to go to New York to talk about cows. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. And so, so the thing that's awesome about it is a new type of behavior has been digitized. Mm -hmm. And then they have a service in the cloud. It's called Guho. Okay, cow stop. And the service then gets the data, scores it, detects the probability of the animal going in heat, alerts the farmer mm -hmm. on a mobile phone, and got a close loop. Nice. So, sort of, that's an amazing journey, right? So, this yeah. is what's happening. So, when you have data coming in huge volumes by digitization of everything, every kind of behavior from, you know, machines, from uh, everything, then you bring that to the cloud, you apply <clears throat> enormous compute power. Then you put AI algorithms to work on the data. Then you're able to generate insights that are massive. Mm. And that allows you to do so many different things. You're able to do understanding of vast amounts of data. Could mm -hmm. be JFK files or all your mm -hmm. oil contracts. Mm -hmm. It then allows you to go also separately build systems that actually classify the information and, you know, uh, help make business process efficient. For example, you know, Jabil is one of our partners. Mm -hmm. They've got this automated optical inspection system for printed circuit boards. So, you know, discover if a printed circuit board has a defect or not, right? right? I mean, a component is missing or something. The thing is, the system today is very manual. You know, yeah, it flags some images, lots of errors in the images that are flagged. Lots of good ones get flagged incorrectly. Right. False positives. False positives. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they work with us to build an automated optical inspection system using deep neural networks. Okay. So it then correctly classifies the printed secured board as a good one or a bad one. And in this case, with 98% accuracy. So you can completely automate that quality inspection process. Mm -hmm. And this whole thing goes much faster. I think there's a missing piece here, which is end users need to trust the output. And, you know, I, I can only see the end users in my limited realm of life, right? Yeah. I see people that use smartphones and I see people that use computers. And sometimes, you know, they're wildly off in what they interpret as reality. And so do you find that there's pushback among end users when you implement a system that has something like AI, you know, sending you a message and alert, hey, there's something going on here. You know, the person has to trust that that's actually good information. So, let me answer it this way. Look, 
AI and machine learning is incredibly scientific. Mm-hmm. You're actually building scientific statistical models. Mm. You know their performance on the data it's trained on. You can put it in the field and evaluate its performance as the data is flowing through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can see how accurate it is in very mathematical quantitative fashion. You know there's its error rate. So like for example speech recognition. Yeah, we actually know its error rate. Yeah. It gets quantified. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The thing that is great about today's machine learning versus rule-based systems of the past, right, is that it's truly statistically scientific. Okay? We saw this in the demos today that they were showing the percentage accuracy and then they were showing the percentage result on a given test. <laughs> right. And you can improve, but then again, every time it improves, you can actually even shadow test it and make sure it has actually improved. Did it's it a quantitative, improve? right? Mm-hmm. See, see the thing uh, that uh, a lot of people probably don't fully grok is AI today is actually based upon scientific statistical learning. Mm-hmm. It's been around for a long time. Right. And it's just become so prominent because there's so much diverse data available. Mm. So when you didn't have all of this data, it's only a few, you know, people working with, uh, say, fraud detection in credit card uh, world, which is right. my first job, by the way. You know, by the way, that's an area where you can actually show you how much money you actually save by stopping fraud and how fast you so sure. stop it. Like, sure. And it's like, you know, real. And yeah, measurable ROIs. Very measurable ROI. Yeah. And it's really when it gets into these conversational systems that sometimes people are, you know, wondering, hey, you know, how well does that perform? But in the back end, you can quantify all of these things. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the two scenarios you described earlier. So we have the the cow scenario where you sort of discovered this relationship between being in heat and movement, mm-hmm. which seems much more like an unsupervised, you had a whole bunch of data and you ran it through uh, a data mining algorithm that found a correlation. Well, actually, in that particular case, dairy science researchers had actually discovered it. Okay. They actually had wrote a pub- published a paper about it, which then went ahead and implemented it. And be- made into a product. Yeah, but that, to me, see, doesn't seem like a deep learning solution so much. That one was actually a pretty simple scenario. Sure. Mm. But in many of the deep learning situations as well, there's a deep learning is really actually improving performance over more traditional statistical models. Sure. Pretty much everywhere where there is a deep learning model, you could put a traditional statistical system, you just won't get very good performance out of it. Well, it it seemed like that was the jump that happened with voice control systems, that we, we had this sort of traditional trained model that right. hit a limit and it only got so good yeah and then there was a pause right. and then suddenly a significant improvement happened exactly. and it was a complete change in model Com- complete change. you had to do the training right whereas yes. you know use something like bing speech yeah where you guys continually improve the model correct and yeah. so this is because of the representational capacity mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the deep learning network mm. so these deep learning models are so big and they're able to go into the tail of the distribution right mm. so to speak you know, learn, you know, things that, and learn and hold all of the information. That's really where the deep learning model just completely changed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you brought all of this capacity, and then a few algorithmic innovations allowed you to train these extremely large models, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then you just had incredible representational power right. that you didn't have with simpler models. The We saw a demonstration today, I think it was Seth doing it, yeah. mm-hmm. where the, it was the disconnected vision. They took a bunch of pictures of fruit. They trained the model in the cloud. They mm. ran it against the cloud. And then they deployed a version onto a phone. Correct. 
turned the phone into airplane mode and it still worked. Correct. And I watched very closely. So I'm like, I love everything about what you're doing here. Is it really going to fit into a phone? Yeah. And I think the download was three megabytes. Like it was pretty small. So what are they downloading? Like how does this? It's a compressed model. Okay. Yeah. It's a model that is actually very simple to execute on the phone. I showed a similar one. Um, in this case, we are showing skin cancer detection. Interesting. Okay. So we, there's a public data set on skin cancer images, mm-hmm. you know, good mm-hmm. ones, uh, mm-hmm. uh, good skin, skin cancer uh, examples. And you can build a deep learning model to classify it. Right. Then I can go put it on a phone and, you know, I can have like just uh, show the video camera or video over your skin and it will show risk in, at the frame rate. Right. So, yeah, these, these models can be relatively small. Mm-hmm. So, the learning is large. Learning is large. You, you want a lot of data to learn lots of uh, different things, mm-hmm. right? And go into the tail, so to speak. There, you know, by definition of tail, there are very few examples. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you got to get large amounts of data to get all those examples. Mm-hmm. You learn a robust model. Then you go build uh, it into the phone. Interesting. And so, the thing about Microsoft now is with the Azure AI platform, and Samarin, which right. allows you to build these great mobile apps cross-platform, you can empower every mobile developer with the power of AI. Easy to add in. Easy to add simple, in. Simple skill simple to, to add in. Yeah. yeah. I remember neural nets from back in the 80s. Yeah. And... You know, my first class in neural networks was in spring of 91. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And that was uh, sort of about the peak, too. <laughs> After that, it went into this <laughs> it went winter. In, and that into AI another winter. winter. There's been many winters, right? There's like a winter. The origi- originally, they, they started coining the term, the Minsky and those guys in the, right. in the 50s. Yeah. The first winter's in the 60s when the military figures out they're not going to solve everything in, an, in a month. And then there's another one in the 80s and another one in the 90s. But it's always, I guess, the hardware improves. So you go back and experiment with the models again. And then you hit a limit of some. Mm. Yeah. So what's different? I mean, neural network to me was this idea of just sort of weighted values in a tier of nodes. What's different today that makes that so much better than it was in the 90s? Yeah. Two or three things. First of all, the deep learning innovation really changed the representational capacity. Mm -hmm. So when that innovation happened, well, Lots of types of neural networks that were conceived in the late 80s, early 90s, like recurrent networks, which didn't work all that well at that time, now started working much, much better, which are the capacity. So, see, there were lots of concepts invented at that time, like recurrent networks, reinforcement learning, Mm -hmm. and associative networks, and so on. These things all worked only sort of partially, so people sort of gave up on it. Now, when it became deep, these things started working really magically. So, what made it deep? So, deep neural networks. So, uh, previously, most neural networks were three layers. Right. A hidden layer and then uh, the classifier layer. Right. You know, people actually mathematically showed that these three-layered neurons had all the function approximation capability that you needed. The, the return for a fourth layer or fifth layer was so low. There was it, no yeah, point. it didn't seem like that. Hmm. But then, in you know, about... Ten years ago, you know, some Jeff Hinton and some of his students showed that when you actually made the network like 10 layers, hmm. and then you came up with some smart ways to train them. Because when you get these 10 layers, it was actually really hard with the old simple backpropagation algorithm to train it. Mm-hmm. So they had to come up with some heuristics, some clever ideas. And since then, they have evolved a lot. When those clever ideas were applied, these things could just do dramatically better on computer vision mm. tasks is where they showed sure. it first. So that's then carried on. So right now, the best language translation is a neural 
translator, right. not yeah. a traditional machine translator. Wow. You know, the best speech recognition is all deep neural network based. Wow. Best vision is all deep neural network based and so on and so forth. And guys, hold that thought while we just take a minute to uh, hear for a word from our sponsor. Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl. Have you tried JetBrains Rider? It's a new cross-platform .NET IDE that's light yet powerful and comes from the makers of ReSharper, IntelliJ, IDEA, and WebStorm. You can write .NET code on Windows, Mac, or Linux. Rider has you covered. Rider helps you develop ASP.NET, .NET Core, .NET Framework, Xamarin, and Unity applications. Most languages used in .NET development are supported. From C-Sharp, VB.NET, F-Sharp, and XAML, to ASP.NET Razor Syntax, JavaScript, TypeScript, and all that other front-end stuff. It comes with navigation, thousands of code inspections, refactorings, unit testing, debugging, rich coding assistance, and more advanced IDE features powered by proven technology from ReSharper and WebStorm. Download Rider now and take it for a 30-day trial at rider.netrocks.com. That's R-I-D-E-R dot D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S dot com. And we're back. We're at Connect in New York. Carl and Richard here talking to Joseph Saroche, enjoying a little uh, AI conversation with someone who's clearly worked in the space for a long time and uh, fun to go a bit down memory lane in that. There, there has been in the news lately this conversation about creating the critical systems dependent on deep neural networks, these, you know, 10 layer deep and not being able to prove mathematically or prove simply why it got a correct outcome or an incorrect outcome. It's always going to be the incorrect mm. outcome where they're going to go, well, why did it get that one wrong? Mm. And it's not like it's a simple algorithm that said, oh, we had a, we had a bug in the algorithm. How do you, how do you measure a neural network's accuracy? Yeah, that's a great question. So I may actually go back uh, a little bit in another field. Most medicines, the way they work in the human body, most people don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's right. simply empirically measured. It you're right. Measured, okay. Right? So, but we have rigorous methods for it, right? We have randomized clinical trials. Yeah. And you do rigorous statistical studies of controlled, uh, in, in controlled ways. Double blind tests. Yeah. And then you validate it safe. You would first do it in an animal model, then in a human. You mm -hmm. validate it and then you deploy the medicine out. And you track. Right. Well, AI is going to be similar. Sure. Okay. When you're deploying AI in mission critical applications that are super important, you're going to first test it in right. very rigorous ways. And you're also, while even it's operating, you're going to constantly monitor its performance. Right. You're going to, even in production, you're going to keep live testing it. Right. That's how all complex systems are managed. And building up that test suite is going to give you an error probability. Yeah. You're going to have a level of certainty around yeah. that, yeah. that yeah. based on the test results right. you got. And as you build more data, have an even better set. Correct. And mm -hmm. so then what you have to have is when AI is taking mission-critical decisions, if there is statistical error, mm -hmm. which is going to be there in every system, sure. you know, software has bugs too, by yeah. the way. Well, you have a way to reverse it, mm -hmm. right? You have to fix the error. Yeah. Compensate for whatever uh, it did bad and move on. That's how all of society works anyway. Sure. So 
no different. Yeah. And, it, and I appreciate your medicine example, especially yeah. where yeah. it's like we, then we find out there's a certain group of people where this medicine's inappropriate, but didn't get caught in the initial sample set. So we didn't know. Right. And now we know we make an alteration and that's probably going to be the same thing. Yeah. Cause the other more algorithmic, you know, prune tree approaches, they're much more measurable. They're very direct. Once you find a model, it makes sense. It's like you can see this math well, makes sense. Only the simplest ones. I guess that's true. Only the simplest ones. Right. And, and by the way, vast majority of software that we use in the world and runs our economy is so sophisticated, nobody can prove it either. Sure. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't exist except in our heads, really. And yeah. software. It's, yeah. it's pressing against the edges of comprehension for us. It's fair to say, at no other time in the history of the world have so many people known so little about <laughs> so much. <laughs> Can't argue with that. <laughs> Some of us know less than others. <laughs> it's when you don't know you don't know. That's the problem. <laughs> yes. Don't know enough to know you don't know. Yeah, right. I don't know if you know this, but Richard actually worked with neural networks in some stock picking stuff yeah. back, back in the Back 80s. in the day, we did yeah. some horse racing too. Horse racing, yeah. stock picking. We played, mm -hmm. we played and with I much even, I even had a little programmable neural network that uh, it was probably 1990. 1989. Yeah. Yeah. It was a hip time for that. It was a hip time. And yeah, I just, I never did any stock picking with it because I'm like, all right, you're giving me a database of stocks. You're giving me a tool. I press go and I pick the stock. It's kind of, you know. Yeah. It's so deep neural networks are now being applied uh, in the financial market sure. widely. People are, you know, whenever there is a new algorithmic technique, people want to go try it out. So why would anybody invest in the stock market when you're competing with these machines that just do it like in microseconds? Well, I think long-term investing is the key. Yeah. Yeah, because you have different set of perceptions. You know, when we did the horse racing thing, there's certain kinds of races that the model did really well on. But I remember watching old horse guys who who literally watched the horses right. go by and then go, it's that one. And they got like a third of the races right. Yeah. And we were getting about a third of the races right. They were just different thirds. They didn't have the heifer Fitbit. There you go. <laughs> different measurements. You know. But it, it is, I mean, there are, there are, nobody's going to deliver 100%. There's different methods for each thing, and they are each going to get wins in different areas. And mm. It's very, to me, that's fine. I find that fascinating. Mm. It's just, it's tough to know one way or the other. So, would you call that a uh, heifer data set based on large models? <laughs> yeah, uh, heifers are pretty large. It's going to be a lot of cow jokes today, huh? So, that's, that's the kind of day we're having here. Oh, it started with Brian Harry, so. That's true. Yeah. What is the fixation with the GPU? Why are GPUs important to the modern AI movement? Great question, right? It's uh, really because of the vast crunching power that you need to learn these deep neural networks. Mm. And uh, if you're doing it on a CPU, it takes weeks, months. Uh, it's just not cost-effective either. And the CPU arguably is too complicated a computing unit for the individual task. Not enough computing units. See, the right. deep neural networks are actually simple computations. It's uh, add-multiply. Right, but lots of them. Right. Lots of them. Vast amounts of them. And so GPUs were just built for that on images. Yeah. Right. So people just repurposed it to apply to deep neural networks, especially when it came to computer vision, because it was naturally 2D images. You know, GPUs were already good at processing 2D images. Sure. The thing about GPUs is the limited instruction set. Is that what makes them so fast? With the large number of cores. Yeah, it's yeah. a small number of operations that it really yeah. does. Right. Yeah. And it's a... But a uh, huge number of cores. A, yeah, large number of cores. Yeah. And you can repeatedly do it over, you know, a repeated data set. And so that just made it a lot easier. But now, you know, new types of uh, approaches are coming. 
mm-hmm. like FPGAs. Yeah. Okay, FPGAs are great. That's a floating point. I, no, actually, it is a field programmable. Field programmable, right. Array, right. So, it's basically configurable computing. You actually arrange the logic gates, etc., to do the computation you want. The good thing about it is it allows you to go after irregular computation. See, image computation is extremely structured, regular, mm-hmm. 2D arrays, sure. right? When it's text data or sequence data, well, then it's not that great. GPUs are actually not as great as it's for images. Yeah. So then things like FPGAs become much better. Okay. Um, and then people are even building ASICs um, for so deep dedicated learning. hardware. Dedicated for the hardware, application specific integrated circuits. Okay. Lots of innovation there. Lots of innovation to come. I think it's interesting that the, the amount of compute you need to do some of these more advanced models, especially when you're building the model. Once the model's built, you don't need a lot of it. So suddenly utility computing, the whole cloud approach, makes so much more sense. Mm -hmm. You you only use it when you need it for building the model and then you give it back. Yeah. And I think this is going to be the uh, wave of the future in that vast amount of AI will be built in the cloud. Mm -hmm. Okay. People will just put data in the cloud. So you need to put huge amount of data. Mm. Putting on a single server, Mm. not really viable, it's expensive. Then also getting enough GPUs. Yeah. You know, painful if you're trying to outfit your data center with GPUs now. And by the time you instrument all of that, then the GPU version changed. You might as well just elastically provision it in the cloud. Yeah, right. So you come up to the cloud, elastically provision your uh, GPUs, run it on all the data you have, develop these models, and then you go deploy it wherever you want. You can deploy it in a database like SQL Server or mobile phones or the Edge. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, Must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time for a real obvious joke that I missed, and I need to apologize, but I'm going to tell it right now. Okay. So, three statisticians go deer hunting. They see a deer. First statistician fires at the deer, misses 10 feet to the left. Second one fires at the deer, misses by 10 feet to the right. The third one jumps up and down and says, I hit it! (laughs) (laughs) And a bullseye. And a bullseye. (laughs) Right on! But wait a minute, that deer's still alive. How did I do that? <laughs> and that same statistician crossed the river whose average depth was four feet. Right. <laughs> That's actually time to give away a DevExpress D experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React Grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. And you can check it out and test it for free on GitHub, but learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Bill Mason. Congratulations, Bill. Yeah. Call flat for you, sir. And Bill won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, coming up, not this show, but coming right up Real here, soon. Real soon. 
we uh, are going to be giving away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guest, Joseph, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, and it can't be Azure Compute Hours <laughs> credits, <laughs> what would you buy? I guess it could be Azure Compute credits. It's kind of an easy one. I don't know. I'd probably buy on some add-on to my Tesla. Uh, what Ooh. don't you have on your Tesla? <laughs> Actually, I bought an older version, so I don't have any. You don't have all the autopilots? Wait, wait, you don't have autopilot, the, I don't have the sensors. You don't and have I, the I, I bought my, you know the car a few times you just now. have an electric car i know dude you're missing it's out it's just like a hairdryer on wheels don't they pay vps enough you should go get a shiny new one <laughs> how about the speech recognition interface so you could drive it by saying 10 degrees to the left 13 degrees to the left. <laughs> what could go wrong because it's scientifically and statistically proven to be <laughs> just not tested <laughs> <laughs> well and they, they, and they now have two autopilot levels too right like, yeah the only fe feature i wouldn't buy in my tesla is the p option that the ludicrous mode because it's like $25,000 to shave a half a second up to zero to 60 times. You got to tell us what this is. I know you've said it before, but tell everybody what that is. So ludicrous the, mode. The ludicrous mode, literally the, the top of the line Tesla, the most expensive model with everything on it. This is the S. Yeah. Has this ludicrous acceleration option, which gets it down to a zero sixty in the race car range. It's like two like and a half. Two and a half second. Second. It's uh, crazy. And yeah. the normal one is three. But in exchange for that, that's a big pile of money and a shortened battery distance. And it comes with a free upgrade to your health insurance policy because you may black out with that many G's. <laughs> we, it's interesting how deeply wired in our brain the sort of gear shifting what yeah. Teslas don't do that. No. They just keep going faster. Yeah. And their acceleration curve is flat. Right. So they accelerate hard and they stay accelerating hard, you yeah. know, until you run out of battery or hit a wall or, yeah. or, or wind force finally pins you down. It's quite creepy. Ah, uh, yeah. I've experienced it. So, yeah. Mm. Just saying. <laughs> If you I, should buy one. But $5,000, I think I'll get you to charge her. Expensive toys, those Teslas. No question. Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, I'm of a mind now that my lease comes up on my current car next year. And I'm looking at automated driving and mobility as a service and thinking, whatever car I buy next, probably the last car I buy. That I'm going to have that car for three or four years, and that puts us in the 2020, 2021 time range, and we're going to start seeing just fully automated vehicles. Mm. And you're just going to pull, call up for the vehicle you want at the time you want it. It's going to take you. And why would you own a car at that point? It all, makes no all, sense. All ride sharing becomes so good that you just get it right. It just makes. You want. Why would you do anything else? Yeah. So and I, something I kinda, even simpler. Yeah, I kind of want to. So I figure I get the Tesla as sort of the last thing with all the autopilot, and that's. The car could probably drive for the longest because it will have the automated mode anyway. And then that's probably it. I don't, just don't think there's going to be more. I blame the AI guys. It's all your fault. You did this. <laughs> Speaking of AI, let's get back into it. What is the coolest, you think, cognitive service Microsoft offers? Because there's a lot of them and they keep growing. I think language understanding service now. Lewis. That we have, Lewis. It's actually becoming so powerful for conversational bots. Just understanding text, being able to train understand commands, intent. Right. It's actually evolving so fast. And we now can use the translator along with it. So you can actually have bots that are developed uh, once, but 
run in so many languages mm-hmm. across the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is really cool when you couple translation, language understanding, create these bots with Azure bot service. Yeah. That That's Star Trek stuff right there. It's very powerful for interaction. Yeah. 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 And I think that's really cool. And then even the other services like speech recognition, the error rate is dropped dramatically. Right. Uh, you saw the new Invoke speaker that we have. Yeah. Uh, it's actually really effective at speech recognition. So I think, you know, collectively we're making significant progress. And the thing to remember about cognitive services, it's not just the algorithm. It's sort of that expertise behind speech recognition, for example, mm-hmm. or language understanding. It's all the data on which it was built. Right. So and continues to be trained on. Continues to be trained yeah. on. And all the cloud power that went into building that model. Right. So what you're getting is not an algorithm, right? Yeah. What you're getting is actually a finished service. Yeah. You know? yeah. Somebody with deep expertise collected all of this data, right. built this uh, incredible model, yeah. tested it for accuracy, validated it, put in production, and then continues to improve. And continues so that's to a, improve that's a different it. thing about, yeah, it about these cloud-hosted APIs. Right. Yeah. Well, and, it, and from a dev point of view, it's like, because I don't want to do any of that stuff. I yeah. just want a service. You just want pre-built components. Yeah, so so right. the thing is, like, when people build buildings these days, you don't build it from brick and mortar. Yeah. Right? Remember the Chinese who built, like, a hotel in six days and restaurant on the seventh day? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so that was built out of prefabricated components. Right. So the yeah. idea is, like, prefabricated components are what makes building easier. Yeah. Software and AI is going to be very similar. Sure. You also have the ability to plug in your own data to the existing algorithm don't you exactly and you can customize these custom speech you know train it with your accent vocabulary and language and then when that also isn't enough that's when you go to a deep neural network model built on azure machine learning or something and add on right and augment it and make it better so what you're going to see you know i have this vision and i think it'll come real which is imagine there'll be a million apis in the cloud Mm-hmm. Like you're okay with uh, in a million apps in your iPhone app store, right? Yeah, but, I don't think you know, I actually am okay with that. <laughs> I know, but you wouldn't have, I mean, you're comfortable with it now. If somebody had told you, you know, 10 years ago even, yeah. that there would be a million apps on your damn phone, yeah. Yeah. what would you have said? Uh, unlikely, how will that happen? No. Well, very, I, got, I think I got about 150, which is already too much, but I get your point. It's like eventually there's this diversity of everything you need up there. Well, so you'll have APIs, right? APIs right. are more powerful than apps because yeah. they can be glued together by a developer mm-hmm. to build apps. So, I can easily envision a future when you have a cloud, a central cloud, in which people can build and host vast numbers of APIs of all types. Well, those are available to you now for application building. Mm -hmm. And the software development task changes dramatically because there are all of these highly powered APIs that somebody with uh, expertise and knowledge and data developed and built Mm -hmm. like the speech recognition apps, APIs. And then my task as a developer... You is chain much, things together, that's yeah. it. Yeah, chain Stitching. things together. Stitch the inputs right. through the APIs exactly. to the outputs. Yeah, you're not going to be like, uh, you know, the tailor making every single stitch no. with your needle. You're going to just connect up premium yeah. parts. You, yeah, you're not weaving your own cloth anymore. And what are you guys doing for discovery of those APIs? Because obviously, if we're going to have a million APIs, we've got to be able to find the right one I need right now. That's right. I, I think we need, you know, much better documentation everything. Documentation is awesome. Discovery a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, just like internet and search, we've got yeah. to invent new mechanisms to find what the right APIs to use are, how yeah, to yeah. test them. Yeah. The testing part is important. Yeah. Right. You know, figure out then which ones to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all work in progress, but yeah, yeah. those are the... Those are the challenges. Those are the challenges that mm-hmm. we'll keep making progress on. 
Yeah, no question. Do you think about creating a sentient uh, piece of software? Not at all. I mean, I really feel we've uh, overhyped this term artificial intelligence. Sure. Right? Yeah. This is all just science, scientific algorithms mm-hmm. coming. Do you do think we'll get to more of a generalized intelligence in the sense that ask it anything, give it a broader range of tasks, not as so specialized as it's been? Uh, look, I think it's so far away. I mean, look, uh, let me tell you, we haven't even taught machines how to remember. Right. Like, yeah. What's memory? Right. Well, forget memory. How about locomotion? You know, show me a robot that can actually walk like a human being. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Boston Robotics guys are getting better at it. They're getting Dynamics better at it, guy. but these things are like still very hard problem. And, I, and I'm not going straight to Terminator. I'm sure <laughs> the first time we get, we talk about something more AGI-like, a broadly conversational bot, it'll still be a bot on the internet. You know what humans have that um, Boston, of course, now lots of things, but humans have the ability to forget. Yeah. <laughs> I has an even more important thing that I, I'm, I, I feel comfort in. Humans have a survival instinct. Mm-hmm. Kill any AI that threatens yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I also think this, uh, this idea of will, right? Like, one would argue that the, the AGI fear is not that it comes up with its own ideas and goes and does things. It's that you ask it to do something and it does it to an extreme unacceptable in society. Right. Right. You know, that, that it's, it's a little too good at its job, so to speak. So what would they say on like Star Trek, you know, data's uh, algorithm for appropriateness has needs a little yeah, tweaking. Yeah, needs a little tweaking. Yeah. Long before we get anywhere near that tech, we're going to get ourselves in all kinds of trouble with the, the ASIs. Yeah. You know, we think about the insanity that went on in Facebook and Twitter over the last U.S. election. And that was... You know, kids in Montenegro just trying to make money off of ads. What happens when you actually put some serious software to the task? But they found that um, not only that, but the Facebook algorithms that were serving up ads, did you vote today, for somebody who is left-leaning were totally different from somebody who is right-leaning. Sure. And they actually yeah. figured this out. The only way to really know is to have multiple profiles and go, you know, friend the right people for that profile, and then you'll see a difference. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people have constantly feared technology, and this is no different. And I really feel the other way. There is incredible amount of optimism sure. to be had. But technology can be abused. Like everything in society. Yeah, sure. And so what do you need is good government, good regulation. Well, I wonder if the, the fact that all this stuff's going to run in the cloud means that the the public cloud providers are going to have a certain oppor- are going to have an opportunity to provide some governance. Correct. And uh, so the thing is, uh, this is an, an important thing about cloud providers, which is all all of them. Their business depends upon security. Their mm-hmm. business depends upon trust. Their business mm-hmm. depends upon complying with laws. There is a lot of incentive uh, across the major cloud providers to provide very trusted, safe environments. Actually, sure. that's a good mm-hmm. thing. Sounds like all of the big providers are collaborating, stuff like the partnership on AI. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we call, abbreviate them as FATE. Mm-hmm. Fair, accountable, transparent, ethical AI. And I think we, AI should be always in um, the interest of humanity. Oh, sure. I, we totally agree. And we saw that at Build, you know, with the, with the demos that they did, the AI demos, where you couldn't argue with the benefit that you were getting out of these things. Right. I mean, just take even healthcare, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. There is so much potential for AI oh, to yeah. improve human lives in healthcare. You know, to predict chronic conditions. Like one of our partners, Epic, Epic Systems, 
they looked at electronic medical record data and showed they could predict uh, hypertension up to two years in advance. Yeah. And they can look at common workflows in hospitals, simplify them so the doctors have more time for the difficult cases. Yeah. So it's just going to make it so much easier for us to provide better care for the 9 billion people on the planet. I'd be satisfied with HI in healthcare, human intelligence. Yeah. But, uh, sometimes we <laughs> right. don't see And second, that. AI being scientific can help systematize lots of aspects of this, right? Yeah. Very powerful. And mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, another thing is machines that never fail, like predicting maintenance. Right, you can right. predict when machines are likely to fail. Right. Sure. So, I think right, too. Uh, applied in the right way, AI has the ability to transform human civilization in a very positive way. Make us healthier, make us happier, make our machines more reliable, mm. create an incredible amount of opportunity for humans to go higher as right. opposed to, you know, lower and, you know, keep working in the ground. It is, it is a way forward. But it does present some ethical challenges. It does present uh, some new efforts. I don't think that software people as a whole have needed to think this deeply right. about, you know, what are you going to do with this stuff? I think that's a big responsibility on our shoulders. I mean, primarily because, you know, way back, Mark Andreessen, I think, said software is eating the world. Yep. Right. So when software becomes the fundamental fabric of economy, mm. I mean, it's already happening, right? Yeah, the last right. amount of time you spend on the phone, it's, sure. it's just because it's software. Yeah. Well, it, the challenge here is we're the chefs. And so at some point, people might be annoyed with the food we're making. Right. So we've got to think clearly about what it is we're cooking. But I really appreciate what Microsoft is doing in that regard. It really seems, I mean, Sacha, the grand leader of all of this stuff, it's his vision to make a, a better world. Exactly. I mean, our mission is to empower us all. And uh, we really, we repeat it at every opportunity in the company. And really augmenting human abilities is what AI is about and what a lot of the software is about. So, Joseph, what are you going to do when you go home? What do you, what's next for you? <laughs> I think a lot of planning. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of excitement around AI. Uh, and the question is, uh, given the incredible wealth of opportunities we have to go after, what are the best ones to put forward? And yeah. It's got to be a challenge forward. to prioritize. There's just so many things to work on. Prioritizing is hard. Yeah. Yeah. And right now, this uh, explosion in AI is so broad. It's a confusing world even to even to us. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, sort of got a tiger by the tail. Well, we're, we're happy to go along for the ride with you. Yeah. It, it's, it's an amazing journey, right? And so the thing about computing is these waves, you know, the waves of the mobile, the cloud, AI, they come so quickly these days, mm -hmm. right? Waves crashing upon each other. Yeah. And it's actually exciting and a very creative time. Yeah. Absolutely. Very, very creative time. Joseph, thanks for being Thank here. Thank you very much. Today. Yeah. My yes. pleasure. My pleasure to be here. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. 
And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.